You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are joined by Professor Timothy Caulfield, who is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. His interdisciplinary research on topics like stem cells, genetics, research ethics, the public representations of science and public health policy has allowed him to publish over 350 academic articles. He's a member of the Order Canada and a fellow of both the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. He contributes frequently to the popular press and is the author of two national bestsellers, and we'll link to all of this in the show notes, The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages About Health, fitness and happiness, and is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything when celebrity culture and science clash? By the way, that might be the best title ever. (laughs) The answer is yes to that. (laughs) His most recent book is Relax, Damn It, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. Caulfield is also the co-founder of the Science Engagement Initiative, hashtag Science Up First, and was the host and co-producer of the award-winning documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, which has been shown in over 60 countries, including streaming on Netflix in North America. Well, our efforts are very much aligned with yours, although our backgrounds are obviously quite different. So you have a law degree, whereas I have a doctorate in public health and Andrea has a PhD in biomedical sciences. So this will be a really fun uh, mashup for today. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. We are super excited to to get into all of these topics. It's something that's near and dear to, to our hearts and certainly a point of frustration. Well, I love it's an honor to be here. I I love the work that you guys are doing. For sure, our universes are aligned. So, yeah, looking forward to this conversation. So maybe we should just dig in. And it's funny because, you know, I know we're going to talk about some specific examples of the media's role in spreading misinformation. But I'm a little bit salty about some stuff that's happened recently in the U.S. And and I think uh, we can chat about it later. But let's talk about um, a topic that you've you've actually, um, you know, have an article that came out recently, which is kind of this, you know, the rejection of science or, or um, you know, the, the concept of both sides when talking about a variety of science and health topics. So, um, Timothy, maybe you can kind of, you know, set the stage and, and talk about some of the trends that we're seeing. Yeah, this, this is the problem of false balance. And, and you guys, I actually think this is becoming one of of the dominant issues in pop culture when it comes to skewing the representation of science. And and I don't think it gets enough attention. It's sometimes called both sideism. You know, you've probably heard that that phrase. And it's absolutely everywhere. Uh, You know, in the piece, I I, I suggest that our, our current information ecosystem is really a a massive false balance machine. And so so what do I mean by this and, and why is it so important? Well, we're increasingly seeing 
fringe ideas. Often these ideas do not have a good scientific foundation at all. Or, or maybe, let's be generous, they have, you know, a sprinkling of scientific plausibility to them. But they're held up in pop culture as if they're equal to the scientific consensus. And we're seeing this again and again and again. And it does great harm. There's a fascinating study that came out of out of Europe very recently, where they asked the public, and it was a, a fairly large sample size, by the way, you guys, so I think it was a pretty robust, it's hard to study this stuff well, but it was a pretty robust methodology. They asked the public, what is the medical profession's view of the COVID vaccine, right? How much do they trust the COVID vaccine? And listen to this, you guys, 90% of the public think that the medical profession is split on the topic. Like 50% think it's okay and 50% think it's not okay. When the reality is over 90% of the medical profession think it's safe and effective. And by the way, only a very small percentage in this study thought it was problematic. And that is a great example of false balance because that false balance has a direct impact on the public's perception. By the way, colleagues of mine at UBC did a similar study and they found in Canada, and they, they surveyed experts on the COVID vaccine, 99% think it's safe and effective, 99%. There was a recent study that came out of the US and they were looking of um, physicians specifically that were spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccine. And it was actually traced back to just 50, five zero, physicians that were responsible for almost all of the vaccine-related misinformation. And there's some very prominent vocal ones on Twitter that I'm sure you can guess, but it's perceived by the public as being a much larger proportion than it is in reality. And, and there have been good studies that have shown that this false balance does have an impact on public perceptions. It does have an impact on health behaviors like vaccination, obviously, but we've also seen it with things like GMOs. We've seen it with things like climate change. Uh, and the other thing I find, you know, this, I'll put my legal hat on just for a moment, <laughs> which a hat that I rarely wear, by the way. It also impacts this idea of, of censorship, of this idea that people are being silenced and we're infringing uh, on people's freedom of expression. On the contrary, on the contrary, you know, people are going on the world's most popular podcast and complaining about being silenced. You know, they're going on the most popular cable news show and complaining about being, we should all be so silenced, right? So some of our own research has shown that these fringe ideas are, on the contrary, not being silenced, they're being overrepresented in pop culture. And by the way, most of the physicians, I'm sure you guys have seen this data, most of the physicians that allegedly have been silenced haven't been. You know, there's been very little action from regulators to take, you know, to stop uh, MDs. And by the way, I think that regulators already have that obligation and that and that power to do that because they're holding, you know, professionals to a standard of care. We can have a conversation about that later. But the bottom line, False balance is doing a lot of harm, both sides. And I'll end before I'm going on for a while. There is good news. There is good news. There have been a couple of other studies, again, quite recent, quite recent, let's say the last couple of months, that have found that telling 
the world about the scientific consensus does change perspectives. So there is good news here. So this is also a tool that we can use to fight misinformation, you know, explaining explaining what the scientific consensus is. And by the way, we also shouldn't fall for the idea that the scientific consensus is somehow, you know, groupthink or that you are, you know, overly concerned. That's not the case at all. Scientists are always challenging the conventional perspectives. They're always challenging it, right? That's not what we're talking about. Well, it's so interesting that you say that because I think we obviously echo that that sentiment. But then we'll often hear, "But no, like you're, you know, you're the, these few voices are being suppressed. They are trying to bring the truth to the surface, and we're suppressing them." Galileo. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and actually, we so we just had uh, Dr. Peter Hotez on the pod. We're still totally uh, just reeling him. from that. It was amazing. But we were talking about how uh, RFK Jr. wanted to debate him, and obviously, you know, that got a lot of traction with the Rogan bros and, and all those audiences. And I think uh, what uh, his core reason for not doing it is related to this idea of false balance, that you're sort of implying by saying that, oh, we'll debate about vaccines, that there's somehow equal, um, you know, equal weight to the arguments on both sides of this, you know? So I just was curious how you felt about his decision not to not to debate. I, I totally agree. Of course, I know Peter. He's a fantastic and a brave guy, right? I totally agree with this position. And, you know, I've been subjected to the same it's a stunt. It's a misinformation stunt, right, is what it is. Debate me. You know, I've had the situation where they've, uh, I've got, you know, offers to debate anti-vaxxers. And by the way, I don't really get a formal offer, right? It's always done on social media. It's always It's a, it's a challenge on yeah. Twitter. Exactly debate me, bro. Right. Exactly yeah. right. And then when I don't, and, and they'll make posters up, right? And um, they'll say who's accepted the invitation and who hasn't. And then when you don't show up, they call you a coward. Uh, it's a it's a stunt, and I totally agree with with Peter. It's just a way to to legitimize their view in order to create this veneer of legitimacy, and uh, it's almost always always a mistake. So I totally agree with his position. So kind of to that end, you know, what do you think is the biggest kind of fuel behind this idea of false balance? And and you know, it's not it's not just with regards to vaccines and perception by healthcare providers. We, of course, see this in the wellness space quite extensively where, you know, conventional medicine and and science-based practices are essentially rejected for unproven supplements that are often promoted by completely unqualified people like like your beloved Gwyneth Paltrow. What, What are the factors here? What's driving the appeal of false balance? Is it the media? Is it something more insidious than that? What, what's your take? All the above. How's that for a lame response? <laughs> um, but but I, I, I think that there are are, are some fascinating and, and evidence-based, right? We are starting to get more research on, on what's happening here, trends that, that are happening. And and one, you guys know this, and I bet you talk about it all the time. I, actually, I think I've seen posts on this from you guys. <laughs> anecdotes, testimonials, narratives, stories. There's a good body of evidence that tells us that the, that, you know, relying on an, a testimonial and, and, or an anecdote can sort of shut down our ability to think scientifically. I mean, I, I always love to use the example of Nicki Minaj's tweet about the, the you know, her friend's cousin's testicles. Yes. You guys remember that, right? Who could uh, forget? Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> Yeah, that testicle ruined a week of my life, right? Because I was doing like media, but but it's a really good example of of a whole bunch of 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 
factors that drive misinformation, right? So Nicki Minaj, you know, I actually love her music. Um, it, she has a big platform, right? And so she, you know, and that matters, right? I think that's often, you know, not said enough. They have a big, you know, Aaron Rodgers, big platform, uh, you know, Tom Brady, big, you go on and on, right? Do you know how many people I know don't eat um, nightshade vegetables because of something they said? Well, Tom Brady's a great, you know, the nightshade guy. Uh, I'm actually originally from Boston. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. So I, I, I bleed Patriot yeah. Blue. So I can, there's a, a Patriot helmet there. There's a, a, a doll of Tom Brady right there. Tom is a really good example of an anecdote, right? He is this incredible, if it works for Tom, yeah. of course it's going to work. I mean, how could you not, how could you argue right. with success? But the Nicki Minaj tweet is, you know, he has this massive platform. Nicki Minaj has this massive platform and it plays to the illusory truth phenomenon, which I, I know you guys are familiar with. It, it, you're more likely to recall it, more likely to see it if it comes out of the mouth of a of a prominent individual. And there've been a lot of very interesting studies that have backed that up, right? So I think that's one of the factors. Uh, then there is just the fact that they're telling these stories, right? There are these anecdotes. And so in the Tom Brady example, he's the anecdote, right? He's the testimonial. And in the Nicki Minaj tweet about the testicle, she's telling a little story, a little scary story on, on Twitter that plays to all that research that tells us that anecdotes and testimonials can be very persuasive. And in addition to that, it's scary, right? So it plays to our negativity bias, right? And to this tendency for scary things to, again, land and, and, and be remembered and have an impact. All of those things, I think, combine. And, and if you think about, and I, I hate to always talk about COVID because I think this is relevant in a whole bunch of, <laughs> of places, but we just have so much research on the COVID stuff too. Studies have shown that scary misinformation in the COVID context consistently got more traction, right? And, um, but think about that, that you have the, all of these scary anecdotes, and many of them aren't even true, right? If you think about the died suddenly <laughs> phenomenon, yes. you know, baloney, right? They're not, it's not even true, but that's one scary testimonial anecdote outweighs hundreds of millions of data points on safety and efficacy. And so I think that that is a big, a big part of the phenomenon. And that of course is one of the reasons why, why both sideism kind of wins this false balance wins because it'll be this scary compelling story that feels like it deserves to be heard versus you know, the kind of boring scientific consensus, right, of a bunch of nerds who came to, did rigorous research and came to a conclusion, right? So I think that that's partly what's going on. I want to bring it over to kind of the the media's role in this, but I'm going to, I'm going to not talk about COVID for a second and talk about another recent thing. So let's talk about aspartame and, and the example that we saw um, with regard to media headlines about aspartame. So for those of you who may not remember, um, there are two different entities, bodies within the WHO. There's the IARC, which is the International Agency for Research on Cancer. They are a working group within the World Health Organization that assesses hazard based approaches to things that may or may not be 
linked in some capacity to cancer in humans. Separately, there's a different entity that's jointly headed by the WHO. It's called the JECFA, which is the Joint FAO, WHO Expert Committee on Food Additives. And they're the organization that's literally the expert on food ingredients, at the dose that we consume them, safety, and they're the ones that set the acceptable daily intake levels for different food additives. So within a day of each other, both of these groups, both under the umbrella of WHO, released reports with regard to aspartame, which is a non-nutritive sweetener um, that has been on the market for decades. And the IARC classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic. Now, in the world of IARC, that means that there's no human evidence that aspartame causes cancer. It's the same category as as several common antibiotics and pickled vegetables and other things. Um, so, So that that word possibly carcinogenic means that there may be some evidence mechanistically, there's maybe some animal model evidence, there's no actual human evidence. Um, Separately, the JECFA came out, I think the report actually came out the same exact day, and they reaffirmed that aspartame is safe for consumption at the acceptable daily intake level that they previously set, and essentially reaffirmed that it is safe, and you'd have to consume you know, up to like 50 cans of diet soda a day in order to even hit that threshold, which is very conservative. And what the media did was publish a ton of articles saying aspartame being labeled as possible carcinogen by WHO. And of course, they didn't explain what the IARC verbiage meant, which was incredibly confusing. They didn't even mention the the actual food additive commission. And then, of course, this led to more fear mongering and more. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Told you aspartame was was toxic and killing all of us. So so, you know, let's talk about this. What's happening here? you know, why aren't there more responsible reporting with regard to this? You know, what's the end game? Uh, and it is a, a great example of, of a lot of things we, well, that we've just talked about, right? And, and the other other element here, and I don't know, I know I did a lot of media around these reports. I'm sure you guys did too. And the interesting thing is, if you come out in support of aspartame, and I, I don't even like aspartame, you know, that I, I went... Confession, I went through a Diet Coke Oh, phase. I'm obsessed with Diet Soda, but <laughs> no. I don't care what sweeteners in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I went, I, but I'm, I've, you know, graduated from that. I, I, my wife still teased me about my Diet Coke phase. But um, if you supported aspartame, all of a sudden you were the baddie, right? You were the pro-cancer person, right? So I think that that is part of, of this, the narrative that unfolded, right, is that um, you're you're been bought out by big food, um, uh, by big pop, as we say here in Canada. <laughs> um, uh, you're the baddie. Uh, and, and the other thing is this, and, and you guys wrestle with this all the time, I'm sure, this perception of risk, right? Um, we somehow we have to get to zero risk and and um and of course that that is you know absurd and it's it's very difficult to represent how small this risk which was is speculative too i think it, it is important to recognize uh it, and communicate it in a way that that is digestible i'll put it that way and in addition to that, of course, of course, a scary headline is going to win the day. So as you guys know, there have been a lot of really interesting studies that have shown that scary out- headlines outperform positive headlines. There was this fascinating study that came out 
I'm going to say January this year, that actually mapped headlines over the past decades. And it's found that, you know, scary headlines are increasing in frequency, um, you know, ominous headlines, you know, and, and headlines, and I love this categorization with joy in them, <laughs> are decreasing. How heartbreaking is that? Fewer, you know, less Doom joy, more scary. For the win. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the win. Exactly right. And and that's exactly, I think, what what is happening here. And and so, you know, I, I'm sure you guys saw this. I, I, there were there were stories that did a pretty good job reporting on this, but it wasn't in the headline and it wasn't in the first paragraph. And we know that that's what, you know, studies have shown this, that that's what people read, right? And, you know, and I'm guilty of this sometimes. You read the headline, you read the first paragraph, you skim everything else. And the, and the more accurate stuff is often near the, near the bottom, or there's some quote from some boring scientist someplace, right? I think there's a lot going on there. And the other thing I'll say is, um, uh, it's a good example of how science is hard. It's hard, right? And this aspartame debate has been going on for decades. There's been scary aspartame stuff for decades. So that's the other thing that they're leveraging. And it really highlights how you know correlation is in causation. And there's these, you know, these bad nutrition correlation studies that are often come in the mm-hmm. nutrition space, right? That get attention. Okay, the last thing I'll say about, <laughs> about this is everyone, the pop culture, and I have studied pop culture for a long time, right? They, pop culture loves stories about coffee, about alcohol, about chocolate, and by the way, coffee is almost a yes, miracle uh, substance. <laughs> so, hashtag team confirmation bias. Um, but they love these stories, right? They love these stories, and they're they're going to continue to be ro- rolled out. And we always have to look at them with a skeptical eye. For me, it's it's what can scientists do if the media is not inclined to adjust this and in many ways is really eroding scientific literacy and and accelerating kind of the emergence of pseudoscience and chemophobia and and you know the the false balance it is a, an incredible challenge and you know, i wish I, and i bet you guys agree with this i wish i had good news on this front because because our the problem is our information environment is becoming so chaotic and so frenetic right it's so fast paced that you can't really see um, pop culture, whether you're talking about the legacy media, right? We're not even talking about influencers and social media more broadly. You can't really see them dialing it back, you know? There's been this fascinating research on pausing. I'm sure you guys have seen this, right? The idea, if you just pause even for a moment when you're digesting content on, on social media or on your phone, you're more, more likely to, or, or you're less likely to believe misinformation, less likely to share misinformation. And, and Gordon Pennycook at Cornell and David Rand and MIT, and there's others you know, who have re- replicated this work, have found this to be, to be the case. And they speculate, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they speculate it's just this idea of, it's, of, of pausing. It's not necessarily even that they're applying critical thinking skills. It's just this idea of, of not being caught up in the, in the, the frantic pace of, of the, our information environment. So because of that, it's going to become more difficult, I think. And I think the News Liter- Literacy Project recently um, had a study about that, too, that, you know, the, the posts that people are more inclined to immediately reshare on social media are those that instill emotion and particularly fear and anxiety. And so it's, it's this really challenging, you know, 
phenomenon to overcome because again, science is not, it's nuanced and it's not sexy and it's not all or nothing. And it's, yeah. We literally just did a post on this, uh, Timothy, where it was, we were saying how there's something sexy and appealing about these definitive black and white statements that are telling you this will kill you or taking this will save you, you know? And, and we're saying like the truth of the matter, it's, it's a lot more boring than that. It's, you know, there is multifactorial and yes, certain things might increase your risk in the context of other factors. I mean, but no one wants to hear that's a lot of words, right? So I think what we're trying to do is at least make people aware of that, but having that translate into a change in the way that we actually consume information, I think that that's going to be a, <laughs> a heavier lift. Well, it's interesting. It, it should invite scientists to collaborate with artists with comedians, with um, graphic artists, um, and and create these, because I, I like to believe, th th there is a fascinating paradox, right? Because, you know, do you fight fire with fire, right? And then are you just, okay, I'm just gonna make the ecosystem even more chaotic and loud, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna fight. And sometimes I do that, I, I, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll be snarky to Aaron Rodgers or something, which is totally a, 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 a Trojan horse strategy I'm using. You know, I'm using the celebrity in order to get across the science informed. So, but in some ways, I'm fighting fire with fire. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, playing their game and their game. It's not like a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, but, but, but it is, it, it is a paradox, right? And the other interesting, more seriously, a lot of the criticism that science communicators, regulators, public health officials are getting now for how they handled COVID is saying, Hey, you were too dogmatic in you know early 2020, uh, and and we and, and I'll put myself in this category. They, we were dogmatic because the science communication strategy has always been be clear, be definitive, and be actionable. Right. So they tried to do that despite the fact that the science was uncertain, and it's backfired. Now I think that that backfire is often overplayed because I think what happened is the misinformation mongers have leverage that and it blew it up to make it more significant than it really was. Um, you know, they cherry picked quotes and things like that to make it sound worse than it really was. But nevertheless, that, that is the paradox we're facing as science communicators, right? To what degree do we get loud and definitive in order to, to combat misinformation? And I like to take, I, I like to believe that we can, and I think you guys do this, we can be nuanced uh, we can be reflect what the science actually says. We can reflect the uncertainty and the fact that science is a process, not a list of facts, and still make it engaging and still make it fun and still make it digestible. And I think I, I honestly think we can do that. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. Couldn't agree more. And it's interesting because we also sometimes, you know, we test different ways of communicating. Sometimes we're a lot more serious or empathetic, or sometimes we're snarky and, you know, and it's, it's interesting how people, different people obviously respond differently to different posts. And some people will see how disappointed they are in us when we get snarky or we get a little sassy and, you know, and it's, I don't know, I, I think we're trying out different tactics to see what is effective. And, and I don't think that there's a one size fit it's all right. You're right. And, and there are people that are uh, my friend, Jen Gunter, who I'm sure, you know, um, uh, somehow Jen can be like all snark <laughs> and it's just Jen, right? It's just how it she works is. For some people. And then there yeah. are other, 
it works with them. You got to find your voice, right? And then there are other science communicators that, uh, you know, Eric Topol, he's very, he's very straightforward, you know, not a lot of spin. And that works incredibly well for him, right? So I think everyone has to find their voice. But I do think, you know, I, we need to be out there. We need to be out there. And you, you bring up a, a, a good point, Timothy, because there are, there's a spectrum of science communicators, people with legitimate credentials, but we've seen that some have gone the route of disinformation and misinformation. And some of that's evolved over time. So, so there's a couple of examples and, and maybe I won't name names on the podcast, but some very prominent, I, I know where you're yeah. going and I totally some, agree. <laughs> some prominent people that were doing COVID communication early in the pandemic that have really gotten very um, fatalistic about the things they're saying, insinuating that people are, you know, their immune systems are collapsing, which which there are no data to suggest that. And then and then you've got, you know, kind of separate of COVID, you've got like the Huberman bros who, you know, are using their training in neuroscience um, to to hawk supplements on very prominent podcasts. What's as as a member of the general public, this is very confusing for them, right? How do they navigate this and how, you know, what's, what's the guidance or what, what would you recommend people look for when trying to suss out who's a credible science communicator and who's not? Yeah, this is a really scary phenomenon, I, I think, because for all the reasons that you just, that you just said, um, I, I actually think that this, this tech bro longevity optimization trend it's the it new is. wellness woo, right? It is the new wellness woo. You're going to biohack and take all the, you're going to, you're going to oh. wear your continuous blue Google monitor and check your iron every hour and, <laughs> you know, take your hormones and. Don't forget your yes. full body oh MRI. Gosh, you got to do that, yeah. you know. <laughs> Um, and, you know, a real quick debunk on that. And I wonder if you guys agree with this. I swear to God, if you took a hundred thousand people, right. And had that hundred thousand people, exercise in a way that they enjoy, you know, eat healthy, no magic there, uh, sleep, uh, don't smoke, surround yourself with people that you love, pick the right parents and have the right socioeconomic <laughs> background. Um, you take you take those 100 people, 100,000 people, and then you take another 100,000 people and have them follow all the tech bro things. I bet the first 100,000 live longer. Yep. I totally agree. And, ha- and by the way, they're happier. They're happier yes. too, <laughs> you know? Because because people are paralyzed with this anxiety and then and then it's this um, you know, elitist like you got to buy all this nonsense and 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 yeah, diagnostic cat, you know, atrophic yeah, injury and keep, overdiagnosis. Keeping, keeping your immune <laughs> system healthy is not, it's not fancy. You just, you know, like you just said, good hygiene, good sleep, good diet, diverse diet. You can have your ice cream. You can indulge. You don't need to panic. Um, but yeah, but it's, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's being figureheaded by these people with terminal degrees. Yeah, I, I call it science exploitation. Um, and so what they do is they take a little bit of real science right? So stem cells, microbiome, we have actually done a bunch of studies on microbiome hype recently. Um, they take microbiome, genomics, pers- personalization, precision, you know, that's personalization and precision. That's the, one of the new health halos, right? Um, and in fact, there was a fascinating study that came out again, the last couple of months that said, if you just say something is personalized, it has a stronger placebo effect, right? Uh, and so they have that element to it. Um, and and then they over, you know, they make it sound like it's definitive. Right. So 
I, I don't want to name names either, <laughs> but if you listen to some of these podcasts and you actually like wrote down what they said, sometimes they're, you know, accurate when they reflect what the mouse study says or what this, the, the, the tiny N, you know, the N of 10 study yep. says, uh, um, but the, the vibe that, the, that is taken away from it, whether it's about cold water plunges or how you're supposed to sleep or how, what kind of water you're supposed to drink is that it's definitive and we should all be doing it, right? And so it becomes very hard to critique because you're asking the audience to look at the studies and then compare those studies to the body of evidence. And so I have a, a, a cynical takeaway, <laughs> cynical advice that I, I must, I'm getting old and grumpy. Assume that whatever advice is being given, assume that it is no better than a healthy lifestyle. Just start with that assumption, and until there is a robust body of evidence to the contrary, just assume it's it's hypey science. And if you enjoy following it and whatever, but do not assume it's any kind of miracle. Just uh, just start with that until there is exceptional evidence to the contrary. Is that too cynical, you guys? No, no, no. And and honestly, I love it, and it drives me bananas because obviously I'm a microbiologist and immunologist, um, and and the whole microbiome, you know, hacking and all that. It drives me bananas. And, and like my most recent paper was, was investigating actual personalized drug therapeutics for cancer. Um, and it's very different than all these personalized health hacks and take your supplements and take these unvalidated tests and, and all of that. And it's very frustrating because as you said, they take this, this verb, this, this jargon that does have a meaning in somewhere in the ether of science and they co-opt it. It's like using inflammation as, as the diagnosis du jour and everything is linked to the microbiome. It's like you, you're, you're co-opting like legitimate things that exist and you're now blaming everything on it and using junk science to sell things to people. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most is that it's so predatory and it creates this fear and, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's born out of this privilege, right? You know, same thing with, with people who fear monger about GMOs and, and conventional produce, you know, no, it's not, you know, organic isn't healthier. There's nothing wrong with GMOs. In fact, we wouldn't have papayas if we didn't do GMOs because they were wiped out by a virus. And, you know, like, but the people that can afford it are, you know, affluent people. And, and then, and then you see these people with lower socioeconomic status who are simply just not eating produce because they've been scared that the conventional stuff they can afford is bad for them. That's right. And as you know, there's been a little bit of science to back evidence to back up exactly what you, you said, the rhetoric around organics actually in the aggregate may lead to less consumptions of fruits and vegetables, which is a yes. disastrous conclusion, right? Yes. The, the other thing you reminded me, mm -hmm. the other thing that drives me nuts about the, about the precision stuff about about the whole optimization stuff we live in in a world where most people don't get enough exercise most people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables there's massive inequity um and we're worried about precision you know what, what you know the timing of our sleep you know it's like completely <laughs> it's absurd. it is completely absurd and very elitist as 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 you point out point out we it's funny you should mention, we, we've done a lot of research in genomics we're involved in a precision medicine uh, transplantation project you know selecting organs via precision medicine this is real yeah. this is real stuff real stuff but yeah niche. but not right but not for this <laughs> and and just think of the the big science things that have been exploited so you know genomics um stem cells 
microbiome, nano. I mean, you can go yeah. down. And then the other thing that they do, which drives me bananas, is they use all that language, right? The stuff I just said. And often one product will use all of those words. Right? It's stem cell microbiome. And then it's also, it's natural, right? So they want to have it both ways. <laughs> yeah. They want it both ways, right? It's super sciencey, right. but also not super sciencey. And by the way, it's been done for 2000 years in this culture. Right. That and you, it's clean yeah, and chemical free. Yeah. Right. Non-toxic. So there are sort of two camps of people that, that we see. Um, there's, and, and honestly, there's something with, um, that also aligns with political affiliation. Like we see a lot of like the, the Gwyneth Paltrow types, like affluent white women who are extremely chemophobic, only organic, non-GMO, all natural, this and that. And then Kind of on the other side of the aisle, you have people who are much more obsessed with, you know, my liberties. No one's, no government organization is going to tell me to get a vaccine or do this. And I don't trust the FDA. And I guess, you know, I'm going to biohack my own health and I know best. Do you, I mean, I'm sure you've observed this phenomenon as, as well. Do you see these groups as converging in some way? Is there some common ground that unites them in their kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm like, like uh, vulnerability to, to this misinformation or, you know, the pseudoscience oh, stuff? Yes, yes, it's, it's happening. And, and in fact, uh, this is another topic I'm kind of obsessed with lately is the degree to which health misinformation, which is the area where I do most of my research, health misinformation is increasingly about ideology. Uh, I mean, who would have guessed, right? Who would have guessed, right? So now supplements are, you know, part of the right wing and, and being anti-vax is part of, of the right wing. Who would have guessed? It used to be a new agey kind of, um, you know, counterculture thing that you did. And now it's become, you know, all, sort of an alt-right right position. One of my favorite examples of the degree to which this is all about ideology, about in-group signaling, is the Marin County flip. Now, have you heard about this? So, so Marin County, am I pronouncing that right? As I want to make sure I am, because I know people say, you know, it's an affluent county outside of San Francisco. Actually, Jen lives there. <laughs> um, it's super democratic, super affluent, very educated, lots of professionals. And before the pandemic, it was amongst the least vaccinated places in the United States, right? New agey, you know, the granola heads. The, you know, yoga. I know that's what's happening in Marie. Uh, the pandemic happens, and being anti-vax is now a flag for the Republican Party, right? And you guys have seen the research. It's the strongest predictor of whether you're vaccinated or not is whether you're Republican or not, which is unbelievable in itself, right? So, so this becomes an ideological flag for the right. Marin County becomes one of the most vaccinated places in, in the United States. It demonstrates how this is all about, um, you know, ideology and personal branding and how you want the world to see you. And it's also incredibly depressing. And I can give you one more example, which a study, again, that came out just, I'm going to say, two months ago. A very depressing study, but it really shows how how ideology and polarization has taken over science. So this was a study that was done of the general public and, and physicians in the United States, okay? And they were looking at perspectives on COVID treatments, right? So think ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and other real treatments, okay? Ones that are effective. 
they found that the strongest predictor, so it's a correlation study, but still, the strongest predictor of whether your physician and the general public, whether your physician, their, their position on a COVID treatment was determined by what cable news show they watched. So think about that. You go to a doctor in the United States and your physician's position on a COVID treatment is most strongly predicted by what cable news show they watched and not, and they studied this, and not the science they read. Ugh, it's unbelievable. unbelievable and heartbreaking. The implications of that are wild. I mean, it's literally life or death, depending on the way, the channels through which we're consuming our, our information. That's wild. And, and the depressing thing is, you know, I'm always an optimist, glass half full, despite what I said about being cynical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a cynic through and through. <laughs> Um, we know also from research, once something becomes part of your ideology, it does become more difficult to change your mind. You know, you've in science communication world, we always talk about the movable middle, right? You know that. And I fear that that middle movable middle is becoming more ideologically motivated on these topics. And I think that that's going to create challenges. Yeah, it's it's been, you know, and, and something Jess and I talk quite a bit about is, you know, there's there's often a conflation about patient care providers, healthcare providers, physicians, and scientists, and science, and, and I think it's really important for people, especially people who are going to see doctors to understand, you know, limitations, you know, of their training and their expertise. And while we we would love that they're always taking what the science is, is informing, what their clinical treatment guidelines should be, it's unfortunately the case that, you know, their personal biases often color what, what they're going to believe and ultimately what they're going to communicate to their to their patients. You know, one of the things I, I advocate for, and, and I know you guys do too, is this idea of scientific humility, right? Um, and that, I think that that is one of the you know, sort of e the, an ethos that we we should really try to publicize more. And uh, in a book in a book that I'm working on now, um, you know, I you should always ask yourself, what are some of the things I've changed my mind on because of of the evidence? You know, how, you know, how is my views you know evolved? And I have this list of things that I ha I have. And if you don't have that list. You got a problem, right? <laughs> you have a problem. And increasingly, unfortunately, I think that's becoming the norm. You can't change your mind because of the evidence, because it's my ideology. It's I've got this community that I live within. If I change my mind, am I still part of this community? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, it's it is scary. And it's not flip flopping. You know, right. That's the thing that I think people need to get past. It's not flip flopping. If, if anything, learned, it's, it's a sign of maturity. Yeah, I, learned, and I, I learned something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm taking away from this is that we have our work cut out for <laughs> us and sort of honestly, social media and, and me, just media in general has really changed the way that we're all consuming information. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we have uh, we have to get a little creative, I think, uh, and sort of experiment with different with different tactics. But um, Timothy, I feel like we could honestly talk for a minimum of 10 more hours and just not run out of anything to talk about. Do you want to end? Is there something, an optimistic note that we could end on? Something that we could leave the people with that's not too depressing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I do think, I, I, I think that the good news, there are, are good news stories. We're get, we are getting more and more evidence, right? You know, there, I, I've been researching this area for a long time, long time. And 
we have all these great minds that are focusing on this. We're getting bigger studies on how to fight misinformation. It used to be we'd have these small little studies. Now we have these big, big studies that are you know, really exploring how to fight this. I think everyone's taking this topic more seriously, whether you're talking about the UN, the World Health Organization, nation states, all over, they're taking this topic more seriously. And I think we're starting to get all these wonderful scientific voices like you guys out there, you know, fighting the good yeah. fight, you know, and and so I think that and and by the way, for all those you know scientists out there who are who are you know, should I get involved in science communication? Know that it is an incredible community. Am I right, you guys? It's a it's a warm, it is. It fun, is. great. But community. it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. No more hate mail, please. I know. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Thank you so much, Timothy, for joining us. Um, truly an honor. Um, your insight is just, you know, unmatched. I definitely want to chat with you more about some of this microbiome stuff, too, because um, that's going to evolve um, as well. But thanks again for joining us. And thanks to our listeners. We hope you learned a thing or two and, you know, appreciate your science communicators. They're out here fighting the good fight while maybe the media is uh, not always keeping your best interests in mind. So if you want to support our efforts, and help us grow the impact and reach of unbiased science. We welcome your contributions. We have a donation page on our website, a Venmo account, and a coffee page. And we have some fun snarky merch like my Got Aspartame shirt here. You can pick up our snarky merch for season four on our website. It's www.unbiasedscipod.com. Um, of course, you can be sure to follow Timothy Caulfield, I mean, Professor Timothy Caulfield at Caulfield Tim on Instagram. Is it the same handle on Twitter? On Twitter and all the platforms, eh? All the platforms. Yeah. It's at Caulfield Tim. So make sure to follow him and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channels. We are recording video this season and all of our social channels. Our handle is at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I am a scientist.